This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Whether class or race is the more important factor in modern politics is a question right at the heart of recent history's most contentious debates. Among groups who should readily find common ground, there is little agreement. To escape this deadlock, Assad Hader turns to the rich legacies of the black freedom struggle. Drawing on the words and deeds of black revolutionary theorists, he argues that identity politics, as we have come to know it, is not synonymous with anti-racism, but instead amounts to the neutralization of its movements. It marks a retreat from the crucial passage of identity to solidarity, and from individual recognition to the collective struggle against an oppressive social structure. Weaving together autobiographical reflection, historical analysis, and theoretical exegesis, mistaken identity is a passionate call for a new practice of politics beyond colorblind chauvinism and the ideology of race. And to make this add into a bit of an advertorial, I'd like to point out that I just finished the book. It's really stellar, and I'll be interviewing Assad shortly. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court is a naked vehicle for advancing the interests of rich people, corporations, and social reactionaries. All the lofty rhetoric about originalism or calling balls and strikes is simply an effort to legitimate an institution that is now clearly dedicated to thwarting the popular will over the long haul. A critical task for the left, then, will be to undermine whatever remaining legitimacy the court has and to pack the court, something that is entirely constitutional and that I hope to explore at length on a future show. Today, however, we're talking about Janus, an expected and atrocious decision recently handed down that those who successfully obliterated private sector unions hope will do the same to their public sector counterparts. My guest today is Chris Maizano, a contributing editor at Jacobin, a union staffer in New York, and a member of DSA's National Political Committee, who writes a lot of smart stuff about the labor movement. He convincingly argues that labor has no choice but to return to its militant roots if it hopes to survive. In other words, to survive, labor has to fight for a lot more than mere survival. Before we get rolling, this show is my job only because listeners like you contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month or more gets you access to our weekly newsletter. $10 or more gets you a copy of either the ABCs of Socialism or of Assad Hader's excellent new book, Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I have a lot of other books to send you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And also, some big news. We have a live recording of The Dig coming up in New York City. 
It's Friday, August 17th, 7 p.m. at Verso Books, which is located at 20 J Street in Brooklyn. It's called Blockadia and Beyond, Left Climate Politics for the 21st Century, and my guests will include a bunch of great people. Daniel Donna Cohen, Ashley Dawson, Andrea Lim, and Theoria Francos. I'll include a link to the event info in the show notes. So, if you're in New York or nearby, please attend. I would love to meet you. Otherwise, you'll hear the conversation later on here on the podcast, which will also be good. Okay, here's Chris Maizano. Chris Maizano, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. First, to set the table for this discussion, explain what the Supreme Court's decision in Janus is and how it has changed American labor law. To make a long story short, what the Janus case does is uh, effectively impose a a right to work or a so-called right to work or open shop uh, regime on public sector labor relations in all 50 states. Um, until this uh, time, states uh, set their own public sector labor relations law. Uh, in this in this regard, um, you know, kind of public public employment relations are governed or have been governed by state law, uh, and uh, something like 22 states uh, up until um, this decision uh, allowed for. Um, uh, state governments and unions to um, have these things called agency shops, uh, which allowed unions to collect uh, payments uh, from workers if they were in a unionized workplace, uh, even if those uh, people did not want to be members of the union. They were covered by the contract uh, and its provisions, so they were required by law to make some kind of uh, financial contribution to the union. What this decision does is uh, say that those arrangements are unconstitutional on First Amendment grounds, on, fee, on free speech grounds. Uh, it says that those kinds of arrangements are a form of compelled speech, a form of compelled association, and that um, therefore they're unconstitutional and states can't have laws that allow for them. It also does other things, but that's, that's the biggest and most important aspect of the decision. How does the, the body of law for public sector workers that this decision creates, how does that compare to the law that currently governs private sector workers? Uh, Private sector sector workers, by and large, are covered by the National Labor Relations Act, uh, also known as the Wagner Act, which was passed uh, during the New Deal in in 1935. Uh, So that's a national law. It covers workers in the public sector in all 50 states. Um, So that's the big... And and it it deliberately left out uh, government employees. Uh, if you go back to the debates during that time, there are all kinds of reasons that people gave uh, for leaving public sector workers out of it. So they're not included. Uh, the NLRA only covers private sector uh, workers, and uh, government workers at various levels of government are, are governed by different bodies of law. So the Janus decision is is a huge deal, and it's something that business conservatives have fought long and hard for, and they hope that it will decimate public employee unions. Why is it that the right wants to destroy public employee unions, and how do they see this decision as helping them to accomplish that? And then concretely, what will happen if unions have way less money, which is which is what they want? 
Sure. I, I think that there's two main reasons why uh, they've waged this years-long campaign against public sector unions uh, in particular. Uh, one is that, it, uh, at least in kind of uh, density terms, uh, membership rate terms, um, you know, the public sector is really organized labor's last stronghold. Um, you know, private sector unionization is down to a rate of around um, six, seven percent. Uh, it's quite low in that regard. Uh, the overall unionization rate for public employees has held pretty constant over the past few decades at around 35, uh, 40%. Uh, so it's, it's organized labor's last kind of stronghold. Uh, and with private sector uh, labor so decimated, so small, relatively speaking, it's really put a target uh, on the back of public sector unions and it's made it a lot easier to go after them. Uh, so that's one reason. Uh, and then another reason is that, um, you know, over the years, public sector unions have become, you know, really one of the the institutional linchpins of kind of the broad progressive left. So in addition to all the things that public sector unions do for, you know, their own members uh, and for their own reasons and on their own terms, uh, they have funded a whole kind of broad constellation of organizations and advocacy groups that work on all kinds of issues, um, you know, some directly related to workers and workers' rights, some, you know, indirectly uh, related, uh, you know, addressing a whole range of issues uh, that, you know, by and large uh, line up on the broad left or progressive side of the political spectrum. So, you know, for that reason, uh, you know, the move against public sector uh, unions, both at the legislative and judicial levels uh, by the right wing has been, you know, strategically very savvy uh, by, you know, going after them and kind of trying to uh, pull out the rug uh, from underneath them. Uh, you know, they're they're trying to undermine a, a key kind of institutional uh, pillar of the the very broad uh, progressive left. And yeah, with less money coming in um, and fewer members, you know, public sector unions are going to have less money to put into politics. They're going to have less money to fund these organizations. Uh, they're going to have less money to do um, all kinds of things that they've been doing uh, up to now. You know, and we can have debates, disagreements over whatever strategies or tactics, you know, unions and whatever uh, organizations and institutions that they've been funding have been pursuing. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, these are still really the only organizations that working people have left uh, that try to do something to speak for the needs and interests of, of working class people uh, in the workplace and in politics. So in that regard, it's, it's very troubling. It seems like part of the plan and part of what people in the labor movement and on the left fear is that a sort of downward spiral will take hold because if unions have less money, they have less power. And if they have less power, there's less of a rationale for people to be members of the – choose to be members of those unions now that uh, paying into them is a choice. And thus they will lose membership and then have less money and less power and so on and so forth. That's the, that's the desired objective on the right. Yeah, I think that's precisely right. It's to kind of set off this sort of vicious uh, cycle of decline. If it becomes very rational uh, for individual union members uh, to drop uh, their membership and kind of free ride and be covered by the contract and receive, uh, you know, various benefits and services, uh, you know, for nothing, uh, then, you know, a lot of workers are going to take that deal. Many won't, uh, but a lot will. And yeah, it, it will do exactly what you just spelled out. So that's the fear. Before we get to what should be done, you mentioned in the article that you wrote in Jacobin that something similar could happen for private sector workers, not that they, the business class seems to need much help decimating private sector unions at this point. But my question is, some of the decisions rationale in Janus, I thought, 
was that the government couldn't compel an individual to make a make certain political speech, which is what they construed union dues to be. And mm. this is obviously pretty funny coming from a conservative right that typically has no problem giving bosses the right to make workers do whatever and mm. a conservative right that would happily outlaw flag burning, which is purely expressive political speech. But my question is, what is the conservative legal argument rather than the legislative one for enacting private sector right to work nationally? This is an interesting question, because if you read uh, the opinion and you read uh, or you kind of assess a lot of the arguments that have been going back and forth uh, for this case and then in the string of cases leading up to it, um, you know, the argument here has to do with kind of, to, to a significant extent, has to do with kind of the specific uh, nature of public sector unions. Um, you know, so what the plaintiff and Janice and his supporters were saying uh, was that, you know, anything the union does, even if it's not a public sector union does, even if it's not like direct spending on candidates or on lobbying, uh, you know, every, everything it does, and namely collective bargaining, uh, is inherently political because it bears on questions of, you know, public budgets, uh, of um, kind of policy set at the level of um, of government agencies. Like, you know, if you pay, say, public employees more, this has an impact on public budgets, has an impact on public debts, all those sorts of things. So, and this is ironically, like, seems like more like a Marxist uh, um, assessment than a, than a capitalist one, which is typically premised on a sharp division between the economic and the political. But... <laughs> Yeah, no, you're you're right, and that was that's always been one of the most frustrating aspects of this debate, uh, at least in my view, is that you know the right during this whole period, uh, during this whole debate, has been making you know arguments um, you know on fundamentally political grounds. You know, they're arguing, they're making arguments about questions of free speech and free association and uh, power, uh, political power, and the role that unions play in the political system, and all these things. And I disagree with them, and they're making these arguments very cynically, but they're fundamentally political arguments. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, unions and their supporters, by and large, have been making, you know, arguments kind of couched in the kind of abstract and bloodless language of, of microeconomics, you know, arguments from the free rider problem and all those sorts of things. And this is just this is just like normal HR that we're trying to keep in order. Exactly. And, you know, the, the free rider problem is a huge thing. And we need to, you know, make those sorts of cases and point these kinds of things out. But, you know, at least in my view, I just feel like it's a less it's an argument with less bite uh, and less punch uh, than the sorts of arguments that, you know, the right had been making about, you know, compelled speech and free association and all those sorts of things. Again, arguments that are, you know, wrongheaded and cynically made, but, uh, you know, I think... They're like taking place on the correct plane, I think. Right. Yeah, precisely. Uh, And, you know, I I, I think it might have been more powerful, at least to a certain extent, if, you know, and I can understand why unions and their lawyers might not want to be making these arguments in court because, you know, they're trying to defend uh, these cases on those grounds. But, you know, at at least kind of union supporters and activists kind of more broadly, um, you know, we could have been making arguments on on political grounds, on the grounds of power. Uh, You know, these arrangements, uh, we need to have them because if we don't have them, then the already you know, massive structural imbalance uh, between, you know, workers and their employers is going to be skewed even more because it's going to be harder uh, for workers to form and keep their organizations. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The, it's It was it, it was kind of a peculiar and, and at times frustrating uh, thing to see, uh, you know, the right uh, making these fundamentally political arguments 
uh, and then unions and, and their supporters making uh, these these sorts of microeconomic uh, and technocratic. So, yeah, um, but yeah. I sidetracked you about the, the 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 question of how the logic of Janus could possibly apply in a legal sense to private sector right to work. I mean, this is interesting because, you know, because of that, because the argument uh, in these cases has to do with the nature of public sector unions and their relationship uh, to um, political questions, I guess you can make the argument that, um, you know, because of that and because of, you know, kind of the body of case law that these decisions were made on, uh, that this, you know, will only apply uh, to public sector unions and there won't be a legal case to then kind of jump the track uh, over to the private sector and try to do something similar uh, in the courts. Uh, you know, I've seen some of these article, some of these arguments made, you know, online, uh, you know, the, the point being that, you know, th- this is an overly pessimistic assessment. Uh, you know, they can't do something similar uh, judicially when it comes to private sector labor, when it comes to private sector unions, because it's a fundamentally different set of questions, a different set of case law, all that sort of thing. And a different set of precedents that Samuel Alito would have to create the 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 way he did with leading up to Janus of leading, leaving all these breadcrumbs that allowed him to basically cite his own past opinions to overturn Abood, which was the prior decision governing uh, public employee collective bargaining and uh, agency fees. Yeah, per- precisely right. So that's that's kind of the 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 argument that that I've seen some people who you know know much more about the law and uh, than I do and are lawyers, which I'm not, uh, and I guess that makes sense, uh, you know, intellectually. But, you know, I, I think as we've seen, you know, the, the, the law, the judicial system is not kind of this neutral terrain where people make arguments based on logic and reason and they come to the best uh, decision on that basis. Uh, you know, this is a fundamentally politicized field. Uh, you know, these justices have making, been making decisions on, you know, I think straightforwardly political grounds. Um, you know, and I think you can see that from some of the question, lines of questioning and some of the arguments that were made. Uh, in the Janus case, you know, Alito wrote the opinion, but some of the most aggressive questioning in the case came from, in the oral arguments, came from Kennedy, who basically asked the union's lawyer, it's like, uh, you know, doesn't the agency, he says something along the lines of, doesn't the agency shop give unions more power in the political system? And he says something like, yes, they do. And then Kennedy just shoots back, well, isn't this case over then? You know, so from, from his perspective and from the perspective of a lot of other people who have been sitting on the benches, who have been making these kinds of decisions, you know, I, 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 just, I just don't think that we can hold out hope that um, the sort of logical, reasonable argument that has been made uh, for why this sort of thing can't happen judicially in the private sector, I, I don't know if we can hang our hats on that. Uh, I mean, after everything that's happened uh, to, labor, to labor over the past few years, I, I mean, I, I sure wouldn't. The Supreme Court is, is nakedly political and doesn't even – the conservatives on it don't even strive for the sort of institutionalist fig leaf of, of consistency in their decisions. No, totally agree. And yeah, for those reasons, yeah, I can see the sort of logic of it, but I just uh, – uh, maybe maybe I've become too cynical spending all these years in, in the labor movement, I just, but I just can't I – can't, I can't see hanging my hat on that. Uh, protect us from 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 that jumping the track from the public sector to the private sector. I just wouldn't hold out hope in that regard. Yeah, your cynicism is well earned. Um, I, I want to talk about the the backstory here, which is very important. And there were these years of effort from conservative anti labor political forces to curb unions, both public and private sector, on the state level. And as we've been discussing, now they have a Supreme Court that has generalized state level anti labor law 
onto the whole country. And one of the things that I think is most interesting about this history is that while it's rooted in this really long-running anti-union politics, it's the most it's the most radical measures are really rooted in the period immediately following or immediately during the throes of the the deepest years of the recession with the rise of the Tea Party when government mm-hmm. imposed deep austerity and the right successfully scapegoated unions for for the crisis and also pitted i think successfully de-unionized private sector workers against supposedly ostensibly fat cat have it too good public sector workers can you explain a little about the context of the economic crisis and how it politically and economically laid the groundwork for all of the politics that have led to, to Janus? Sure. Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I think kind of in our focus on these, uh, you know, the string of cases and then all the, the kind of straightforwardly political attacks um, that unions have been on the receiving end of, either judicially or, or in legislatures, I think it's it's easy to lose sight of uh, fact. It's easy to lose sight of the the sort of broad backdrop that's going on at this time, which is kind of a full fledged attack, not just on public sector unions, but I think really on the public sector uh, itself. Um, you know, if we look at um, kind of broad level, say overall government employment or the share of uh, government employment in total employment, um, you know, you you really see this bear out. Uh, you know, in those numbers. Uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, overall government employment hit, you know, and this is at all levels, you know, hit an all-time high in, in sometime in, in 2010, I think in like May, sometime in the middle of the year, uh, you know, and this is right around kind of the depths of the crisis. I think uh, it officially ended in 2009, but of course, you know, we're, we're still feeling the effects today. So, you know, if you look at that time, you know, kind of the all-time high that employment reaches in 2010, you know, from there, it just starts to plummet. Uh, I think you get four or five years in a row where government employment um, drops. Uh, and I think that was the first time that that had ever happened, uh, at least since the beginning of, you know, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics was keeping stats on this in like the 30s. Uh, and, you know, while we've gotten past kind of the period of outright job cuts um, and government employers have started hiring again, they're doing it at way lower rates than before the recession. So, you know, the upshot of that is that there's something on the order of like 670, 700,000 fewer uh, public employer employees than there were, you know, about a decade ago. Um, you know, with most of that happening after the official end of the recession back in, in 2009. Uh, you know, if you look at that as a share of employment, um, you know, the overall share of public sector employment is down to about 15%. Uh, you know, and that's down from, you know, 17, 19, 20% uh, going back a decade or uh, going back to 1975. Uh, you have to go all the way back to something like 1960 to find a share of uh, public employment that's as low as it is right now. So yeah, you're right. Uh, they definitely took advantage of the crisis and of the pain uh, that a lot of workers were feeling. Um, you know, and it's worth reiterating at this point that only something like six or seven percent of workers in the private sector are unionized uh, and can count on the kinds of uh, uh, job protections and benefits and, you know, somewhat regular wage increases that uh, unionized public employees get. Uh, you know, anti-union forces just took advantage of that uh, to brand um, public sector unions as kind of this new privileged class that had to be knocked down a peg and knocked down a peg in the interests of, of justice, you know, not in the interest of, um, uh, you know, just, yeah, that's that's how they painted it. Because it's like, look at your look at your situation in the private sector. You know, when's yeah. the last time you got a raise? 
what what yeah. kind of benefits do you have? What kind of vacation right. time do you get? And your taxpayer payer dollars, your taxpayer dollars are going to fund the the relatively lavish lifestyles of these teachers or uh, mm-hmm. social workers or bureaucrats, whatever. And yeah, and this comes after decades. We're like decades away from like any major kind of upsurge in collective action or strike activity in the private sector. So, you know, a lot of workers who are working for private employers themselves have not ever really experienced anything like that, have never really experienced, uh, you know, collective action and solidarity at work. So um, for them, you know, it seems much more realistic, I think, to, you know, bring other workers down a peg than to try to lift yourself up uh, through collective action. Uh, and then coming back to what you were just talking about, you know, I think a lot of that kind of uh, resentment-based thinking, uh, you know, relates back to the fact that, you know, public employment, uh, you know, women and people of color in particular are, are very overrepresented uh, in the ranks of uh, public employee unions and in public employment generally. Uh, you know, I think for uh, quite obvious reasons, these were jobs that were much easier to get. Uh, historically for women and people of color, there were fewer, you know, uh, it it wasn't as easy to discriminate in hiring practices and all those sorts of things. So I think it's all related to that. And yeah, at least in my view, I think kind of the the long deunionization of the private sector has really just let, uh, it's really put a target on the back of public employee unions and and public public employees generally, Uh, you know, with, with a relative lack of unionization in the private sector, you know, workers are going to uh, you know, in order to get everyone in the same playing field, it's, it's, I think it's much more likely that they'll support, uh, you know, bringing what they see as a relatively privileged group of workers down a peg or two rather than, uh, you know, engaging in the much more uh, difficult uh, work of trying to bring everyone up uh, collectively. Yeah, just as the, the, the long running economic crisis for working class Americans that began in the in the 1970s helped create lay the political groundwork for conservative tropes around the the black welfare queen that same that same long running crisis exacerbated by by the recession really created an opening for something that is drawing on from a similar symbolic palette which is the the demonization of the public sector worker who is also iconically black and female precisely and you know the the image of which tends to oscillate between kind of a heroic martyr uh, you know, somebody who, you know, teaches or does social service work or whatever the case may be because they love it, you know, out of the goodness of their heart and, you know, either they don't or shouldn't expect to, you know, get paid uh, well because of that or, uh, you know, some kind of incompetent time server, someone who's just sitting there, uh, you know, giving bad customer service at the DMV or something like that. Um, <laughs> so it, it's interesting, I think, how that uh, how that public image of, of uh, the government or public sector employee kind of plays out. It's kind of uh, there's kind of two sides to that coin. This this leads me to another a related point that I think is important to emphasize because this is this is often Janus and the, all of these fights are often discussed exclusively as labor issues. But as you said, there are some 670,000 fewer public employees than in 2010, and it's very clear and important to understand that the assault on public sector unions is not just an attack on on public sector workers, but also very much on the public services that public sector workers provide. What Can you say a little bit about the relationship between the assault on public sector unions and the deeply intertwined 
assault on the welfare state? Sure. I mean, I think the most uh, immediate, um, I guess, uh, dynamic there is the fact that, uh, you know, when you're talking about the welfare state, you know, you're talking about programs and all those sorts of things. But you know, they rely on people to uh, implement them, to provide them. Uh, you know, the government has to hire, employ, and, and pay people in order to uh, teach, in order to provide uh, social services, in order to pave roads, in order to do whatever the case may be. Uh, so because of that, um, you know, public sector unions are often in the forefront in, you know, not just uh, trying to prevent, you know, cuts to existing programs because, you know, that inevitably will result in, you know, job losses and fewer members of the union, which, you know, the unions are opposed to, I think, for very obvious reasons. Uh, so, you know, you have these institutions that have a stake in preventing cuts, but then also in, um, you know, expanding and building out uh, the welfare state. Uh, partially, I think, for, you know, pretty pretty clearly self-interested reasons. You know, bigger uh, programs means more employment, which means more uh, union members and all that kind of thing. But also because, you know, for the most part, you know, public employees uh, and then the people who do the work of, uh, you know, helping to run the union uh, in most cases really do believe in, uh, you know, the mission of uh, the welfare state and of um, government as a force for, uh, you know, protecting and promoting the the general interest or the common good. Um, and um, because of that, you know, this obviously makes them a target in the eyes of uh, those who, uh, you know, see the welfare state. Uh, and, you know, the public sector, I think, generally, or at least parts of it, um, as, uh, you know, kind of the, the root of, uh, you know, political and social decadence in the society, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, of the forces, kind of the, the, the center, the, the, the organizing center of uh, all the forces that are sapping, uh, you know, the, the political and moral uh, well-being of the community. Uh, so from their point of view, uh, if they're going to roll back all the worst uh, aspects of the 20th century uh, from their point of view, then, you know, this is going to require rolling back uh, the size, the power, the influence of, of public employee unions, because that more than any other group, I mean, this is the biggest and most influential uh, organization or set of organizations uh, in the country that has, you know, both the interest and the means of, you know, trying to shore it up and uh, where, pro- where possible uh, promote it and expand it. I think that's all Right. And then I think there's one other motivation or at least function, a very crude one that's at play, which is that cutting the welfare state also flexibilizes and loosens labor markets, which is very much mm-hmm. in the interest of business who want to drive wages down. Absolutely. I think it. Yeah. And I think it comes back to the kind of interplay in that regard of, you know, labor in the private and public sectors. Uh, and how whatever affects, uh, you know, workers in one sector inevitably uh, affects workers uh, in the other, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, attacks on the workers' organizations or attacks on the sorts of programs or uh, policies uh, that can kind of shore up uh, the position and the organizing capacity of workers who are not uh, in public employment. And, um, you know, the, the enemies of, of unions, of the labor movement, of progressive politics in general know this quite well. Uh, and this is why they, you know, prioritize uh, the the sorts of things that they do. Uh, you know, this is why they've, you know, prioritized what is, you know, a years-long uh, judicial and legislative attack on uh, public sector unions and all the things that um, that they do in support. Attacking and shrinking the welfare state loosens labor markets in the interest of business in two ways. One, 
if there are fewer public sector workers, that gives more power to fewer positions in the public sector. That gives more power to private sector employers to insist that workers work at lower wages because there are fewer higher wage options that would require private sector businesses to competitively bid up their wages to attract those workers. But then secondly, and this is was very much what was going on with welfare reform in the 90s, is that if you make it less and less possible for people to survive on government benefits, then they will be compelled for their own survival to enter the the low-wage service sector regardless of how low the wages are and how non-existent the benefits are. No, I think that's right. And I think precisely because, um, you know, public employment has traditionally been a way for, you know, women workers, immigrant workers, workers of color to get relatively decent jobs that pay relatively well and uh, provide some level of of job security and decent, uh, you know, benefits package. I think more and more, yeah, you're just seeing people diverted uh, into kind of the low-wage service sector, uh, you know, doing jobs that are very insecure, don't pay well at all, offer little or nothing in the way of benefits. Uh, And yeah, that has the effect of, uh, you know, uh, generalizing insecurity, uh, driving everyone's benefits, everyone's standards down, and um, uh, just lowering the capacity of workers uh, to engage in collective action, whether that's on a job or in politics. Well, the rest of us can't benefit from Amazon Prime Day if all of these workers that they need in these warehouses are instead choosing to laze about on the dole. But <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> I want to turn to the question of where the labor movement goes from here, because I'm sure there are many union members and organizers listening who have been thinking a lot about just that. And for me, I'm I've been thinking about Janice the same way that I was thinking about Trump before and after the election. I certainly didn't want Trump to win. I was not one of these people, by no means on the left, who wanted Trump to win because I thought it would hide in the contradictions. I did not want Trump to win. I preferred Clinton for all of my strong dislike of her (laughs) to beat him. But Trump was elected. And after that happened, I think we clearly had no choice but to try to hide in the contradictions because that was the hand we were then dealt with. And I think that's what we've been doing on the left since. Do you think the same analysis holds true for Janice? Like, it's definitely bad news that we shouldn't have been hoping for. But now that it's happened, um, we kind of have to take the accelerationist approach <laughs> or, or ev- evaluate it f- through that lens. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily kind of characterize it as as the accelerationist approach. Like, I, I definitely wouldn't characterize it as, uh, you know, the, the worse, the better kind of kind of approach. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, at this point, however, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, the options before us are now pretty, pretty polarized. You know, I think before this, um, you know, public sector unions in particular were able to kind of just muddle through, you know, despite the attacks on labor as a whole, despite the effective um, or widespread deunionization of the private sector, despite all the attacks on workers, at least from an institutional standpoint, uh, in terms of membership rates and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of public sector unions in particular, you know, we're doing, you know, from that perspective, pretty okay. You know, the density, you know, the union membership rates in the public sector have stayed pretty constant from, say, late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, through through now, essentially, um, you know, kind of fluctuating 
um, you know, somewhere between 35 and 40 percent as, you know, unionization in the private sector just kind of falls off the table. Uh, you know, you look at some states like New York, California, Illinois, you know, we're talking about basically Scandinavian rates of union density. Like, you know, say like New York, where I live um, up until now, uh, you know, the, the unionization rate among public employees in the state is something like 70 percent. That's extremely high. So, you know, I, up until now, they've been able to to kind of muddle through. And, you know, some states like New York, um, you know, there have been laws that have passed, been passed ahead of uh, the Janus decision that would do something to mitigate uh, its effect. So now, for example, uh, here in New York, during the budget process, uh, Governor Cuomo signed a bill um, that makes it a little bit more difficult uh, for workers in unionized public uh, settings to drop their membership. Uh, gives uh, unions, uh, you know, access to new employees to talk to them about the union and try, try to get them to sign up, um, and some other things uh, uh, as well. Um, but you know, I, I don't think that many of those provisions are going to stand. Uh, you know, they will be challenged. I'm not sure if they'll hold up in court. You know, yeah, the Supreme Court extremely gratuitously and for no like conceivably plausible constitutional reason also included uh, in Janus that it has to be opt-in. Yeah. Like that people exactly. have to actively opt-in to pay the agency fees, which doesn't, I mean, there's a, it, it was just a gratuitous attempt at like a headshot to, to yep. labor. <laughs> yep. No, that's entirely true. And, you know, uh, reading kind of all, all the right-wing legal outfits that have been supporting this case, you know, in the weeks and months leading up to the arguments and the, the decision, you know, that was something that they made sure to highlight and I'm sure, you know, highlighted in their amicus briefs and, you know, in oral arguments at the court and all this kind of stuff. And clearly Alito and the conservative majority listened to them. So, yeah, that makes a, a big difference. And, you know, whatever kind of mitigating effects have been put in place or mitigating policies at the state level have been put in place, you know, I don't think that we can count on those either. And that opt-in provision of the or kind of aspect of the decision is going to be, I think, you know, kind of the the source of these like kind of like longer term almost cancers that will like sap uh, the strength of of public sector unions in places like New York and elsewhere. Um, but coming back to your original question, I mean, I don't I don't think I necessarily see it as kind of like an accelerationist thing uh, or the worse the better. I, I just don't think I, I just don't think it'll work out that way. Um, I do think, however, that it's kind of now. You know, I think the choices before us are are, are pretty polarized. Uh, you know, I don't think. The old kind of repertoire of you know tactics and strategies that allowed you know public sector unions in particular to muddle through this recent period are going to be as effective as they were before, and I think that you know unions in the public sector are going to have to try to recover, at least to some degree, uh, you know the forms of collective action that um, were very common among public sector employees and public unions, um, you know kind of during the formative. Uh, period uh, of the movement, uh, you know, during the 60s and 70s. I mean, the the interesting thing that we'll we'll see how it plays out uh, now is, you know, at that time, you know, public public workers were organizing basically for the first time. Um, you know, there have been previous attempts at organizing public workers in earlier periods, but they were either snuffed out or didn't really catch on. Uh, and but you know, this is the period. Uh, you know, the the first kind of big bang of of worker organizing in the public sector. You know, you've got strike activity. You know, mo more often than not, illegal strike activity happening in cities and states around the country. Uh, you know, this is what leads to the recognition of of many public sector unions. This is what leads to the establishment of collective bargaining system in many cities and states. And it's ultimately what leads to the Supreme Court's decision in 1977 uh, in the Abood ver uh, versus. Um, uh, Detroit Board of Education decision to recognize 
the legality of these arrangements. Uh, you know, basically just to get workers back to work, get them, you know, off the streets, get them to stop uh, and off the picket lines, get them to stop striking um, so that, uh, you know, government employee, employers can make sure their their workers were going to work and the newly formed unions could uh, ensure that whatever gains they made uh, could be consolidated. So we're now going into this period, though, where unions are getting in the public sector, they're kind of getting deinstitutionalized, they're getting dismantled a little bit. And you know, we're coming out of a period of, say, 30, 40 years where, you know, in, in a lot of cases, um, you know, public uh, employee um, union members, I think, in, in many cases have gotten used to being treated uh, or thinking of themselves as something like like a client uh, rather than, you know, as an activist, kind of as a passive consumer of, of services that they pay for uh, and that's something external to them called the union provides uh, for them or on their behalf. So it's going to be interesting to see you know, how this will play out. Um, you know, I think we have to try to recover some of the forms of collective action that were common uh, in an earlier period, but now we're going to have to try to do it after 30, 40 years of, you know, building up these these big organizations uh, that um, organized themselves in certain ways and had a certain relationship uh, between the organization and the members. Um, so, it'll, we're, so we're not doing this from a blank slate anymore. Uh, and it'll be interesting, I think, to see how that will play out. I think it'll be more effective in some unions and in some places than others, um, but we'll see. I think it's far too early to see how this will play out. In that sense, though, I think the, the, the recent wave of strikes by teachers and public education workers in you know, West Virginia and elsewhere has been you know, perfectly timed, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, happening more or less at the same time as the arguments uh, in Janus and then the decision in the case. It'll be interesting to see whether that momentum continues through the summer and into the fall, uh, and if workers stay mobilized in those states where there were protests and strikes, or if it spreads to other places, but you know, I'm sure most readers, uh, listeners, know this. You know, by and large, um, those protests and strikes took place uh, in states that have that have had their own right to work laws, uh, where public uh, employee unions have little or no collective bargaining rights, uh, are politically, you know, relatively weak and isolated. Um, so. Hopefully, um, those protests and strikes that we've seen can be something, something of an image uh, of the future uh, for for public employees uh, and public unions around the country. Uh, but we'll see. We're we're not we're not we're we're not starting from scratch as they did in the in the 60s and 70s. We're trying to do it, uh, you know, in a new era uh, after uh, a series of institutions have been built and dynamics have been put in place. So we'll see how that plays out. What do you think the most salient lessons that labor public sector unions in particular, but not exclusively, should be learning from the education strike wave? I think the the, the basic lesson is that, you know, kind of the the attacks that we've experienced, uh, all the stuff that we've been on the receiving end of, you know, while they're definitely defeats, while they've definitely put barriers and difficulties in our way, um, you know, we shouldn't necessarily think of them as a death sentence. Um, I think it's very easy to get, um, you know, and I've, I've been guilty of this myself uh, from time to time, you know, I think it's very easy to get overwhelmed uh, and kind of depressed by all of the kind of the, the relentless drumbeat of attacks that we've been subject to. And, you know, it's very easy to game out all kinds of pretty dark scenarios politically for, um, you know, for public sector unions in particular. Uh, and labor as a whole. But, you know, I think that what these actions have shown is that, um, you know, what we've experienced, you know, these sorts of cases like Janus and its ilk or, you know, whatever legislative attacks may be coming our way in the future, they're certainly setbacks, they're defeats, um, they put constraints and and barriers in our way, but they don't have to be a death sentence. Um, You know, even without these sorts of 
legal institutional supports. Um, you know, workers can still organize, they can still make gains, and they can still have an impact on politics and on uh, popular consciousness uh, broadly. Uh, I think it's been quite remarkable to see, uh, you know, the the, the turnabout uh, in kind of public opinion and people's views towards teachers, um, public um, education workers, and their unions over the past few months. You know, these had been scapegoats. Uh, the main scapegoats of the attack on public employee unions in the public sector generally, uh, especially during the height of the crisis. But now, which was also the height of the Michelle Rhee-esque education reform movement, that was a pretty potent alliance of right-wing kind of vouchery, religious and free marketer types and, and neoliberal Democrats that had teachers unions on their on the back foot for quite a while. Precisely. But now that seems to have been turned on its head. You know, all of those uh, strikes and protests seem to have very strong popular support uh, in the states where they took place uh, and then, you know, kind of nationally as well. So it's been remarkable to see that turnaround. You know, it, I, you know, I remember it wasn't too long ago that, you know, these were probably, this was probably the most vilified group of workers in the country. Uh, and to think that they would be able to go on strike uh, often illegally and, you know, create lots of inconveniences and problems for people with their kids in school, but, uh, you know, nonetheless get a pretty overwhelming degree of popular support and, you know, win a number of, of important victories in many respects, I think is, I think is pretty remarkable. So for me, I think that's, that's kind of one of the biggest take- takeaways of all this. I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback. We have lost our amateur spirit and need to rediscover the radical and liberating pleasure of doing things we love. In The Amateur, thinker Andy Merrifield shows us how the many spheres of our lives, work, knowledge, home, politics, have fallen into the hands of box tickers, bean counters, and pedants. In response, he corrals a team of independent thinkers, wayward poets, dabblers, and square pegs who challenge accepted wisdom. Such figures as Charles Baudelaire, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Edward Said, Guy Debord, Hannah Arendt, and Jane Jacobs show us the way. As we will see, the amateur takes risks, thinks the unthinkable, seeks independence, and changes the world. The amateur is a passionate manifesto for the liberated life, one that questions authority and reclaims the iconoclast as a radical hero of our times. The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love, by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. I want to talk about what it will take for what needs to happen for rank-and-file to change its leadership. You argue that the reason that union leadership is in the state that it is today, public sector union leadership in particular, but they're probably lessons for for unions as a whole here you argue that they 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 got to where they are ironically thanks to the very victories that they won which were key victories that made working class people's lives better but also made the unions incredibly vulnerable to a hard right turn in the political system which is exactly what what happened and 
you explain this all by laying out a theory of opportunism from Marxist uh, that was developed by Marxist sociologist Klaus Affe and Helmut Wiesenthal. Um, and, and their argument is not about union leaders' moral failings or, or greed or, or whatever, um, but rather that the current situation is the result of, of truly powerful structural constraints. Can you explain, explain that argument and what, what, what that argument tells us about how to transform union leadership? You know, so one of the basic, um, I think, points, I mean, that, the, the article that they wrote um, in 1980, which is a really great article called The Two Logics of Collective Action, it's very dense, it's long, it's very German, there's a lot going on in the article. <laughs> uh, it's not, uh, not beach reading, so if uh, people are going to be listening to this on their their summer vacation, uh, you know, I don't recommend bringing it to the beach. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I think one of the fundamental points that they try to make is that, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, you hear arguments in politics, you know, among some people on the left, which is like, okay, the right wing does this, uh, or, you know, some other group that we're fighting against does this, why don't we just copy them and do the same thing that they do? Um, which, you know, makes some sense, but overlooks the fact that, you know, we're not, we're not operating on the same playing field. You know, the, the kind of terrain that we're fighting on is not, is not symmetrical. Um, you know, and I think that's especially true, uh, you know, when we're talking about workers uh, confronting their employers, uh, you know, both in the, at the level of the workplace and at the level in politics. You know, very simply put, you know, all, all of the structural advantages are on the side of the employers. It's much easier for them to organize. It's much easier for them to pursue their goals. And it's much harder uh, for workers uh, to do the same for a whole lot of reasons. And because of that, you know, it creates very strong incentives for workers and their organizations to pursue uh, these kinds of arrangements like the agency shop uh, that kind of solve some of the basic organizational problems that workers face by, you know, providing them, you know, with some level of external guarantees of support and survival. So they're not always reliant on the voluntary collective action other members, because it's very hard to keep workers... I.e. the threat of a strike. Yeah, the threat of a strike or other kinds of workplace actions, because it's, it's, it's difficult to keep, you know, workers constantly engaged in organization and struggle because, you know, they have, to, they have to live their lives. They have to make money. They have to raise their family. They have to do all kinds of stuff. Uh, and, um, you know, therefore, it makes it very difficult to keep people permanently mobilized. Uh, and uh, difficult for the organization to base itself solely on kind of the voluntary collective action of its members. So it creates these incentives to, you know, kind of uh, establish uh, these sorts of arrangements that solve some of the basic organizational problems, but, uh, you know, in, a, in kind of a longer-term historical setting can make the organization very dependent um, on people, on forces, on institutions outside of its own membership, uh, and very vulnerable politically if, the situation that prevails when they do when those guarantees changes, um, which is exactly you know what has happened over the past few decades. Um, so that's kind of the basic, the basic kind of argument they make in the essay when they're kind of laying this all out, almost as a throwaway line. They make this very, I think, important point though that one of one of the potential kinds of counter tendencies uh, to this uh, to this process. Uh, you know, is the the presence, the the power, the activity, whatever the case may be, of you know, kind of mass working class political uh, movements or parties. Uh, you know, they're talking about the German context in particular, 
uh, in you know around 1980. So for them, uh, you know, this would be socialist parties, communist parties, movements, all those sorts of things on the left. Um, you know, for us, it may not be that. Maybe other political forces out there uh, that are organizing and trying to raise progressive demands, etc. And in their eyes, you know, the existence of these kinds of political forces or movements outside of kind of the formal framework of the labor movement uh, could be one way to kind of counteract some of these tendencies uh, that, uh, you know, in the long run set, uh, set workers' organizations up uh, to be vulnerable uh, politically. Um, so, I, you know, as someone that's involved, uh, you know, not just in the labor movement, but uh, kind of in, you know, organized left-wing political activity, I think that's an important thing to keep in the back of our mind. And I think that's one of one of the things, hopefully, uh, that can provide some level of, or provide a source, potential source of renewal and revitalization for the labor movement, is if there's kind of the the, the resurgence of a of a broad left, you know, both inside and outside the labor movement, um, you know, doing whatever it can to, uh, you know, spread ideas, spread policies, spread vision, uh, and then also rebuild uh, organization both at the workplace, at the level of the workplace, and then in politics. Um, I think that's hopefully going to be one of the sources of revitalization that kind of counteracts um, these sorts of structural tendencies uh, and, and really puts constraints uh, on the ability of, of workers' organizations to uh, maintain themselves and also make gains. Well, that really raises some important questions about the political orientation of the labor movement in general and particular labor unions in particular. Ocasio-Cortez got almost no union support, maybe zero union support. I'm not sure she was endorsed by a single union. What would it take for labor to start making a decisive break with Democratic establishment incumbents and support insurgent candidates from the left who actually support them? Is is AOC enough of a proof of concept to start Moving them, the, the, the conservative makes sense because they've been getting their asses kicked, and they depend on on atrocious incumbents like Cuomo to 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 protect the the very real material interests of their their members. But but these same people like Cuomo are are positioned entirely against the the interests of the labor movement and the working class movement that labor's a part of as a whole. So what like is there some tipping point? That's a really good question, uh, and in many ways, it's kind of like you know the million-dollar question here. Um, but to take another case, if you look at Sh- Shama Sawant, you know when she first ran for, I think it was some sort of state office uh, in Washington, and then I think her her second race, which she also did not win, was I think a city council race. You know, she didn't win either of those times, um, and then you know she ran again for city council and eventually won. And in none of those races did she receive. If, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, you know, any union support. Even though she like, even though she won entirely, I mean, not entirely, but her central message was a labor issue, the $15 minimum wage. Yeah, exactly right. And it wasn't until after she had been elected to office and, you know, proved herself to be a very strong fighter for, you know, every conceivable kind of working class demand or struggle or movement that, you know, she really started to receive meaningful uh, institutional uh, support. Um, you know, from the labor movement in Seattle and then, I guess, in Washington State more broadly. Um, and, you know, I think that's happened in a couple of other cases where, you know, left-wing insurgents have run either, you know, in nonpartisan races or uh, inside the Democratic Party or what have you. Um, you know, they have to be able to prove themselves first uh, as, um, 
you know, kind of real candidates, serious candidates that could potentially win public office, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, labor uh, at an institutional level, at least, uh, is willing to, you know, support them, you, you know, with, uh, with money, with, uh, you know, members knocking on doors, making phone calls, all those sorts of things, um, you know, precisely for the reasons you laid out, you know, unions are at a structural disadvantage, both at the workplace and in politics, because of the fact that, you know, all the structural advantages are on the side of the employer. Uh, this makes them risk averse, makes them conservative, and yeah, in many cases, not willing to take the plunge unless, you know, it's a pretty good bet. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how those sorts of calculations might change uh, over the next few years if, you know, public sector unions in particular start to shrink, have less money to contribute to campaigns, to candidates, to lobbying, whatever the case may be, uh, and kind of lose what until now, you know, in many places has been a relatively strong position, um, you know, in state and, and local level politics. Um, you know, this could, you know, compel many unions, I think, to double and triple down on, on what they've been doing. Uh, in other cases, you may see uh, uh, situations where just, you know, out of sheer desperation, if nothing else, uh, there might be a greater willingness to uh, try new things. I think that that willingness will be the willingness to do so, I think, will be higher if there is the presence of kind of a broader left wing movement, both within the labor movement and uh, more generally. Um, I think that 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 would have a, a I think a, a beneficial effect uh, on these sorts of uh, calculations. Um, I think it's worth remembering and pointing out that you know when the Labor Party movement was happening during the 90s, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the only state where I think they got any kind of official support from a state AFL-CIO federation was South Carolina. Carolina, the dock you know, workers. Un were unions, yeah. Uh, and I think probably some public employee unions as well. But, you know, this is a state where the unionization rate is extremely low, where unions and the labor movement are politically isolated and, um, you know, therefore don't have these sorts of um, connections with mainstream politicians, don't have these institutional arenas to kind of promote um, their goals. And therefore, uh, you know, we're more willing uh, to take up these kinds of projects. Hmm. Maybe that's one potential silver lining of, you know, the Janus case and all these other kinds of uh, attempts at deinstitutionalizing uh, the labor movement and, and public sector unions in particular. Um, but I, I think it's still just way too early to see how that plays out. And I think that, you know, whatever happens in the broader kind of political, on the broader political terrain is going to go a long way towards uh, uh, towards shaping some of those decisions and um, kind of changing changing the calculus that, uh, that people are going to make uh, on, uh, on those grounds. One other important place to look for post-Janus lessons that I wanted to ask you about is Wisconsin, where in, in 2011, Republican Governor Scott Walker really did in miniature in some ways what Janus is now doing nationally in terms of attacking public sector unions, though the state law there was, was even more drastic. It also, of course, sparked a huge uprising that at the time felt incredibly powerful and inspiring, but it ultimately failed to either beat back Act 10 or recall Scott Walker. In brief, what did the Wisconsin law do? And then what do you think we can learn from the struggle against it? So briefly, what Act 10 did um, was, you know, just totally deinstitutionalized to a certain extent um, the public sector unions in that state. 
it go it went beyond what Janice does in terms of just imposing open shop on public sector employment. It uh, you know radically restricted the scope of bargaining, um, so it, it kind of reduced uh, the. This, the the range of subjects uh, that public sector unions were legally permitted to bargain over uh, when they sit down at the table with employers, I, I believe it um, compels them to have recertification elections um, either every year or whenever one of their contracts expires. I'm not I'm not sure about that. Uh, and you know, kind of does a range of additional things that uh, makes it just that much harder um, for unions to uh, attract and retain members. Um, it then followed that up either the next year or the year after that with a, with a, a statewide uh, right to work law that also covers the private sector. Um, so yeah, they 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 went after private public sector labor first in the state and went really hard, not just imposing the open shop but all these other restrictive conditions on them as well. Uh, and then once that was done and um, once the the political power of public sector unions had been reduced, they just went and, and passed a, a public uh, uh, a right to work law for the entire for the entire state, covering both private and public workers. As for that struggle and you know how it turned out and uh, what might have been done differently, you know I wasn't there. I, I wasn't on the ground. I don't have any kind of close-up view of the decisions that were made, what might have been possible, or what could have been done differently. But it does, uh, you know, from my kind of understanding of of the issue and of the dynamic there. It does seem like there was a really um, conscious decision to turn away from whatever kind of level of, uh, you know, kind of street protest was happening uh, that was directed uh, against the bill and directed against the Republicans that were trying to pass the bill uh, to redirect all of that from the protest to the recall campaign, which seemed very doomed from the start, um, at least from a distance. Um, as for whether things... Yeah, Francis, Francis Fox Piven was probably shaking her head knowingly. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure she was. Yes. Uh, I mean, as for whether things could have turned out differently, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, I think it's 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 easy to say, oh, the the unions should have turned people out on strike. You know, take them out of take them out of the workplaces, put them on the street, put them in the state capital, all that kind of thing. Um, but you know, as, as I was saying before, you know, this was happening after a long period where. You know, unions by and large weren't engaging in these kinds of forms of collective action at all. Like, you know, the muscle memory of collective action has just by and large kind of gone away. So I think that even if a lot of like local unions in particular wanted to do these sorts of things, uh, wanted to organize their members to take that sort of action to really up the pressure on the politicians and prevent them um, from ultimately ramming this law through, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if they even had the organizational capacity to do so. In absent, um, you know, kind of a, a layer of, you know, activists, um, rank and file uh, union activists in the workplace who have that kind of broader political vision and, you know, kind of a more militant orientation to the employer. If they're not there and the union doesn't really have the capacity to do that sort of thing, even if it wants to, uh, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what they might have been able to do differently. I do think that if they were able to defeat Act 10 to turn it back, to stop it in its tracks. You know, I think the history of the last few years, not just in a state like Wisconsin or kind of the upper Midwest or the Rust Belt generally, but in national politics could have been very different. I mean, you look at the margin of victory, <clears throat> excuse me, for Donald Trump over, you know, Hillary Clinton in a lot of those states, you know, whether we're talking Wisconsin or Michigan, uh, you know, states that had been 
traditional union strongholds, but where there have been things like Act 10, like right to work laws, all the rest of it, you know. Because Snyder in Michigan also signed a right to work law. Yeah, right after uh, Wisconsin did it, uh, you know, Michigan did it either in 2012 or 2013, can't remember exactly, but they went right to work too. You know, if these, if that, if that bill had been defeated, stopped in its tracks in Wisconsin, you know, I think the history of the last few years could have been quite different. You know, as I was saying, Trump's margin of victory in those states was very small. Uh, and I think you can make a strong case that the decline of the unions in those states uh, really had an impact on the outcome uh, of the presidential race in those states. So who knows? I mean, you know, if, if that had, if that had been stopped, I, I do think you, it's it's a lot of what ifs, but you know, I, I think you could make a case that uh, many things would have turned out differently. Funny how a neoliberalized Democratic Party establishment doesn't understand that it is allowed the very conditions that make viable Democratic Party victories in elections that it has undermined that very thing. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of amazing, and it seems like only recently, in the past few months, do you see you know mainstream Democratic politicians start to talk about unions again and public sector unions. You know, at the very moment when they're uh, sustaining uh, kind of their their biggest defeats, uh, it really makes you uh, it's it's pretty frustrating, to say the least. My last question is one of the most straightforward arguments against. Janus, the free rider problem that we've discussed, is that it allows workers to not pay union dues, but that unions are then still required to represent them. But the business lobby actually wants legislation that would allow unions to not represent non-members, which I didn't know about. I just read about it in a recent Jacobin article by Chris Brooks. And Mm -hmm. this at first blush is surprising since this is something that some on the left also advocate for. Um, Mm -hmm. Brooks argues that this would be a really bad idea and fall into a trap that, amongst other things, would allow for the rise of management-aligned conservative pseudo-unions, which will only Mm -hmm. further hurt labor and workers. What's your take? This is a very interesting question, and I I mean, I'm not sure exactly where I stand on it at this moment. Um, You know, just backing up for a second and revisiting the opinion that Alito rendered in the case— uh, in, in the Janus case, I think it's very clear that um, the next thing on their agenda is going to be the principle of, of exclusive representation. Basically, what that means is that if there's you know a union that represents a certain group of employees at a particular workplace, um, you know people if they want, they have to be part of that union, um, they can't just as an individual go and join some other union or some other uh, labor organization. Um, you know we don't have multiple. Uh, competing unions by and large in the U.S. like what exists in many other countries. So um, I think it's worth kind of noting that that's that's been kind of that's one of the breadcrumbs that Alito left in this decision that I'm sure people in you know right-wing legal foundations already free virtually working on and trying to find someone to uh, you know file a lawsuit on this regard. But as as to the question of you know whether you know unions should be able to um, deny services or representation to people that don't want to pay anything for them. I'm honestly not sure where I stand on this. I can see, I, I, I do see the the merits on both sides of this. You know, you, especially on, in a in a period where workers and unions are on the defensive when they're on the decline, uh, you know, any kind of move to um, undermine that exclusive representation and potentially open the door to, uh, you know, what might probably amount to, you know, company unions, employer employer backed organizations, you know, could be fairly disastrous. Um, 
so I can I can I can see that argument. At the same time, you know, if you're if you're in a state that has not been, uh, you know, right to work, uh, in which you know people now have the opportunity to, uh, you know, not pay dues uh, or anything, uh, and still receive, you know, many of the benefits offered by the collective bargaining agreement, I could see an argument for, you know, the union holding out some kind of sanction uh, to, um, to you know, kind of teach people a lesson, basically, that if you want to, um, if you want to, you know benefit from the contract, if you want to benefit from all the things that a union does on the job, then you should really pay for it. Uh, and, you know, Steve Downs uh, has made this argument uh, in labor notes, um, kind of in in, in discussion with, uh, with Chris Brooks. And that's been a very interesting exchange. I mean, for me, I mean, it all boils down to, I think, uh, the need to you know, regardless of how these sorts of things shape out in kind of legal institutional terms, you know, we're going to need to try to do our best to recover uh, and revive those forms of collective action uh, that characterized the movement's earlier period. Um, you know, that's workers organizing to solve their own problems on the job. And then I think especially in the case of public employee unions, um, working with the, the communities, the, the groups uh, that they're serving uh, and engaging in political alliances with them, not just to, you know, defend what's left of the public state, but uh, of the welfare state, uh, but to try to expand it and democratize it as well, which was something that was very common in the early days uh, of the labor movement. Um, an independent union here in New York called the Social Service Employees Union was a great example of that. And I do think that um, you know, as this kind of new rising generation of of young leftists, of young socialists and radicals, you know, tries to figure out what how it's going to make an impact on the world. You know, I think one of the things that uh, that we have to think about is how we engage with the labor movement. Uh, and how we can, you know, kind of rebuild um, that kind of um, that layer of, um, you know, working class activists, both inside and outside the unions that are, you know, raising the big political, big picture political questions and then also rebuilding uh, organizations at the level of the workplace, uh, because those organizations have really atrophied that kind of memory of collective action has really disintegrated uh, and it needs to be rebuilt. And I think that's that's kind of the fundamental question. I think we can have lots of arguments over the legal institutional stuff, uh, and they, they do have a bearing, they do have an impact on these kinds of political questions that I was just talking about too. But I think those sorts of political questions are fundamental. And that's where we need to kind of begin from. Well, Chris Maizano, thank you so much. Thanks again for having me. Chris Maizano is a contributing editor at Jacobin, a union staffer in New York, and a member of DSA's National Political Committee, who writes a lot of stuff about the labor movement for Jacobin. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that workers of the world might consider uniting, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends about the show. We encourage all propaganda on our behalf. Finally, please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help.